0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel.
1: The reading this evening comes from Luke 17, verses 20 through 37. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, the vultures will gather. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that now you would come, Almighty King, that you would be present in your word, that you would speak to us by your word, that we would know and love and trust in the work of our Lord Jesus more and more, that we would walk by the spirit in which you have given us. And we pray all these things for your sake and for our own good. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Good evening, everyone. We are glad you are here. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you after this service. It's been a lot of judgment tonight, right? So far, uh, we'll get there. But uh, tonight, or today, it's springtime. Amen. Uh, It feels so great outside. But depending on your stage of life, springtime can be an actual stressful time. Uh, Perhaps you high school seniors are beginning to now expect like college acceptance letters. Uh, College seniors might be waiting on job applications or grad programs. I remember this being a really, really stressful time for me. My senior year of high school, like March to April, uh, every day the mailman would come and I would walk out to the mailbox and like slowly open the mailbox and see if there was an acceptance letter from different colleges. And then Come back in and wait for my parents to get home and open them slowly and unfold. Let stressful time. But if you're in this season right now, it's actually a season that we Westerners very rarely have to do, a season of waiting. Today, we have instant food in our microwaves. We have instant information on our phones. We have instant instant entertainment with Netflix and YouTube. We have instant diet pills and instant tans and instant pots and instant carts and Instagrams. Uh, we do not like to wait. Often, if an ad on YouTube isn't skippable in like the first five seconds, I'm like, not worth it. Like, whatever that was, I cannot wait for 30 whole seconds. I'm not like some of you with like the bougie YouTube that skips all the ads. Uh, But you know what makes waiting even worse? What makes waiting even worse if you're not sure that what is on the other end of that, what is on the other side is actually worth the payoff. But when are you willing to wait? You're willing to wait for an hour, perhaps for a ride at an amusement park, because rides are awesome and I love them. But like, what other areas of life would you be willing to wait an hour for? If you rolled up to a restaurant and the wait for a table was an hour, it depends on whether you think the food, the experience at that restaurant is actually worth an hour wait. What is on the other side? You're willing to wait through YouTube ads on the videos that you actually care to watch. We might even say that you endure YouTube ads with hope. A confident expectation that this hilarious or this informative internet video is great, and it is certainly coming on the end of this waiting for the ad, and so I will sit through it. Now, as we've been working our way through the gospel according to Luke, Jesus has been preaching ongoingly about the arrival of the kingdom, presumably to his hearers. His hearers think that he's talking about this kind of like David-like kingdom. This kind of David-like king who will bring military victory again to Israel, to again bring about political power and influence. I mean, we're tired of being stomped on by the Romans. And before that, the Greeks. And before that, the Persians. And before that, the Babylonians. And before that, the Assyrians. And on and on and on. Yes, Jesus, finally, bring about the good old days where we had power, where we had influence, where we had comfort, and yes, even where we had better and right worship. Rule the nations, Lord Jesus, like the Psalm 2, Son of David, with an iron scepter and with the nations under your feet. This is good. Well, this section in chapters 17 and 18, Jesus is going to adjust and then readjust the vision the expectations of everyone around him, about what it means to wait. When all the things that you want, even the good things that God has promised, when they aren't coming on the timeline that we want them. So here's a long setup for a big chunk of Scripture. And by the way, this is a big chunk of Scripture. There's even more than what Haley read that we're going to get to tonight. We're going to slow it way down next week. But we've got a lot to get to tonight, so we need to get on with it. But we're going to think about this text in three sections. First of all, the coming kingdom, that is its arrival. The culminating kingdom, that is its completion, its full and final arrival. And then the time in between. The time between the coming kingdom and the culminating kingdom. But first of all, let's get to the coming kingdom. In verses 20 through 21, the Pharisees are asking Jesus about when the kingdom of God will finally arrive and return, to which he says to them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, or verse 21, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now throughout the centuries, some people have understood Jesus to be saying, you shouldn't look for the kingdom externally, here or there, because the kingdom is within you. That is, the kingdom comes in your heart. It is in the midst of you. But this would be a very strange thing for Jesus to say to the Pharisees. Jesus has been like relentlessly over and over condemning the Pharisees for them, for him to turn around and say, for behold, hey, the kingdom of God is in your heart, guys. Almost certainly Jesus is riffing on the same thing that he's been saying over and over and over to them over the past few chapters. That you guys, you Pharisees, are so bad at reading the kingdom weather signs. He's already told them. We saw a few weeks ago, that like you understand when you see a cloud like that in the sky, that that kind of cloud means coming rain. But here you are, you see all of this healings, all of these exorcisms, all of these prophetic preaching, and you don't understand that what that means is the arrival of the kingdom. He might be saying, when he says the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, he might as well be saying, hey guys, what has two thumbs, or who has two thumbs, and the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Right here. Like, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. I am here. The kingdom of God is here at my coming. We've thought about many times that whether or not you recognize Jesus as king doesn't make him any less king of heaven and earth. And the Pharisees don't recognize him. They don't see him. They, we, live in his kingdom, live under his kingship, We can submit to this reality and live in his kingdom with humility, with obedience, with joy, or we can reject his kingdom in pride. We can actively work against his kingdom in rebellion. We can actively work against our own joy by disobedience. And yet, while Jesus is king, he also said in Luke 13 that the kingdom is something that we should strive to enter. So the kingdom is here, but it is also something that we should strive to enter. Strive to enter the kingdom through the narrow door, he said. So people enter the kingdom, the kingdom does not enter people. And yet, the kingdom, as Jesus describes here, is a way of living. The kingdom is a way of living that is in submission to Jesus, the king. It isn't necessarily, in this time, a building of earthly governmental systems or structures. In Acts 13, in one of Paul's great sermons, after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, Paul shows Jesus to be the Psalm 2, son of David, who is the ruler of nations. But then what is the climax of that sermon? What is Paul trying to say in Acts 13? What has Jesus come to do? Well, he brings a message of salvation. And what kind of salvation? Political salvation? No, Paul says in Acts 13, the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Individuals come to faith in Christ. They are converted. They are saved from death to life. They may certainly find themselves influencing culture, influencing politics and society. Christians may even and should actively seek to bring about that kind of influence that reflects the reign of King Jesus. All humans seek to influence culture and politics and society according to their own moral code, and Christians should not be any different. It seems very strange to suggest that Christians should be the only people who can't or shouldn't influence culture or society or politics. But verse 20, Jesus says here that the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. You cannot see the coming kingdom of God. That's a weird thing for him to say. Even in the miracles, the healings, the exorcisms, the prophetic preaching that he said to the Pharisees, you've been seeing these things and you cannot understand. He's saying, and yet, the kingdom of God in its coming is not observable. People enter the kingdom by their repentance, by their joyful submission to Jesus, not by their building of the kingdom through politics, or social programs, or kindness, or care for the city, So in these statements to the Pharisees, Jesus is speaking of the present, that the kingdom is in their midst presently. It is arriving as the king arrives and as people enter into his benevolent kingdom. But if it has come, Jesus then turns to his disciples in verse 22 and he tells them how it will culminate, how it will finally find its end and completion in categories of the already but not yet, That the kingdom has arrived, yes, in his coming already, but not yet fully arrived. And so Jesus turns his attention to the future, a future hope. And so now secondly, a culminating kingdom. In verse 22, he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Wait, what? What? His disciples must be thinking, because again, he's now turned his attention from his attention from the Pharisees to the disciples, and he said, "You'll be longing to see one of the days of me, the Son of Man, the Daniel Seven Son of Man that Kyle opened our service with earlier, the Son of Man who is reigning and ruling, and you won't see him." And the disciples are thinking, "Wait a minute! I thought you were the Psalm Two Son of David, putting the nations under your feet. I thought you were the Daniel Seven Son of Man." That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. So why in the world, if it shall not pass, pass away, will we long to see you, like we can't see you? Well, it is, Jesus is saying. It is my kingdom that will not pass away, but not according to the timing that you want. There is a future coming soon when things won't look, when things won't feel right. It will look and it will feel like the Son of Man is not ruling. It will look and it will feel like the kingdom has not come. Verse 23, And they will say to you, look there or look here. People are saying, here's the king or there's the kingdom. Go pursue this or do that. And the king will, from his throne, make all things right and new. But Jesus says, no, 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 don't do that. Don't go out and follow them here or there. When the Son of Man comes, it will be impossible to miss. You will not have to guess. So when someone says this non-profit, this non-profit initiative that is now going global, it will mean the coming of the king. So give your time and your money there. This election or even this church planting movement means the coming of the king. So give your hopes and your energy there. Basically every generation of every century since Jesus' Death and resurrection has assumed that Jesus would return in their lifetime because of the tea leaves that they are reading around them. But here Jesus says, no, you don't have to do that. You don't have to look for it in those kinds of ways. There are no tea leaves to read. There are no codes to decode. Verse 24, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. There will be nothing subtle about it. No tea leaves that need interpretation to understand the coming of the Son of Man. No one, if you are standing outside, can miss a lightning flash that goes from sky to sky. It will not be hidden. So maybe the disciples are thinking, okay, great. That sounds great. We're all for that. We're almost to Jerusalem. They are traveling there to Jerusalem. We cannot wait for you to take the throne of David. Where the whole world will hear of your kingdom, where you will destroy our political political enemies, the Romans. Now that, if you destroy the Romans, that is a worldwide unignorable lightning flash, not subtle at all. We're here for that. Verse 25, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Wait, what? Jesus includes this both to readjust the purpose of his first coming, to save his people from the tyranny of their own sin, not necessarily to save his people from the tyranny of their enemies. But Luke also includes it here in chapter 17 for us, those who read these things after Jesus's death and resurrection, that there is still a future reality to which we put our hope. And it's this future reality that Jesus compares to the days of Noah and to the days of Lot. Two periods from the first book of the Bible and the book of Genesis. Two periods of human history in which God brought about massive, wide-scale judgment against a world that had rejected him. Had rejected the good rule of God. But in the midst of this massive, wide-scale judgment, God saves a remnant. Those who are trusting him. He saves Noah's family who believed God's promises of mercy and of salvation. He saves Lot's family who believed God's promises of mercy and of salvation. In Noah's case, verse 27, they were eating and drinking and marrying, even being given in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. And with Lot, verse 28, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planning and building. But on the day when Lot went about from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. And in conclusion of both of those periods of immense judgment, Jesus says, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus is pointing to two times in history where people were just living their lives. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planning and building. How often are we doing those things day to day, oblivious to how exposed we are to the judgment of God? Not because God is out of control and needs someone to be angry with, but because they, because we, often are ruining that which God loves, ruining His creation, ruining His people. They, in the generation of Noah and of Lot, were ruining each other and ruining themselves. Their hatred for what God loves shows their hatred of God. Even their so called good works are tainted all the way through with selfish motivation. This is the doctrine of total depravity, as some theologians might call it. Total depravity doesn't mean that we are as bad as we could be. Some people who are not Christians are still generally and authentically moral and kind people. But to paraphrase another pastor, total total depravity is not that we are as bad as we could be, but that there is no part of us that is as good as it could be. There is no part of my life that does not need Jesus to come and forgive, to redeem, to transform. There is no part of my life without Christ that does not leave me exposed to the last or to the just judgment of God for not wanting what He wants, for not loving what He loves, for my substitution of Him for me, for substituting me for Him, both individually, and as we've seen here, even societally. And so Jesus says, travel lightly. When you need to come down off the roof, come down off the roof. When it means following me, leave the stuff there. Or in verse 32, remember Lot's wife. Lot's wife who turned back, wanting or desiring her old life when it was in conflict to what God was calling her toward. This is right in line with what we've been thinking about over the past few weeks, that you cannot serve two masters. You will always and only have only one true north. When the spinning compass needle of your life amongst all of kind of disorganization or disarray or doubts or anxiety, the needle will point north somewhere. You cannot serve two masters. Verse 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. There is a day coming which will expose where your true north is. There is a day coming where the Son of Man is revealed, when there is exposure. And so the rest of this passage is all about exposure, is all about division. It's not necessarily about the timing and physical realities of what will happen at Jesus' return. Verse 34, he says, I tell you, in that night there will be two in bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. This passage, along with 1 Thessalonians 4, are the bedrock texts for the so-called rapture. Where when Jesus returns and disappears those faithful to him, so that the others who are now left behind will be left for judgment. But what happens... What happens in First Thessalonians 4? If you've got your, a Bible and you want to keep your finger in Luke 17, maybe flip over a few books to your right, or just listen to what I'm going to read. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul writes in verse 16, "'For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air.'" And so we will always be with the Lord. Verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians 4 sounds very much like what Jesus has just said in Luke 17. That no one on planet Earth will have to guess what has now happened. Well, if no one has to guess what happened, which we keep reading in 1 Thessalonians 5. Perhaps it is actually super secret, for when Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5:2, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. See, Jesus is like this prowler in the night. He is super secret. He comes in, he sneaks into your house, he takes your TV without you waking, and he sneaks out of your house. That is, he's like a thief in the night, thief in the night, he sneaks in and he steals all the Christians away from the earth, and nobody knows what's happened. Well, is it the super-secretness that Paul is explaining, or is it something different? First Thessalonians, the next two verses, in First verse Thessalonians 5, 3, and 4, Paul says, While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. For you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Paul really seems to be emphasizing the unexpected destruction that a thief in the night brings. Not his super secret, didn't know he ever came into your house and stole something or not. But that what Paul is describing is that you go to bed thinking, ah, yeah, I had a really great day. I am safe and secure in my nice house. Night, night. And then wham! Like the thief smashes through your window and he destroys your house and he kills you. There is sudden destruction and the people in the house will not escape the unbelieving world around us, perhaps we are snuggling into our comfy beds completely unaware, completely uncaring. That sudden destruction could come crashing through the window at any moment, which is Jesus's point in chapter 17, verse 37. The disciples are saying, where, Lord? Where will these people be taken? And Jesus says, not to a place of eternal bliss, but where the corpse is, there the vultures Will gather. There is not a secret day where part of it happens and then Jesus returns to the clouds, and then perhaps seven years later where other parts of it happen, and then a thousand years later where the rest of it happens. No, at the day of the Son of Man, at Jesus' return, death is defeated forever. Sin is no more. Judgment is exacted against his enemies, his people are vindicated. The kingdoms of this world now become the kingdom of our Christ as we might sing in the hallelujah chorus, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah, at his coming. All of this comes simultaneously at the day of Christ, the day of the Lord, which the Old Testament prophets looked forward to, the coming days of the Son of Man, as Jesus calls it here, on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. This word revealed, or revelation, literally, in the Greek, The apocalypse, when the Son of Man is apocalypsed, when he is revealed, when the day that the curtain is drawn and reality is shown, there is no more exposure to be had. There is no more hiddenness of Jesus. Finally, his people shall see him as he is and become like him at his coming. The apocalypse, when we see him as he is. There is no more hiding, there is no exposing humanity. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, this day will be a day where God calls each by name to account. Where are you? What are you doing? Why are you hiding? Do you think you can hide? Where he calls each of us to account, where he calls each of you to account. And so the question in reading about these so-called days of the Lord, the day or the coming, the revealing of the Son of Man, is are you in the Son of Man? Do you belong to him? Or do you belong to you? The Son of Man looks for those who look for Him. Who wait in expectation. Who wait in watchfulness. Who wait in hope for the kingdom to come, not the kingdom that I might build for today, for my own self, for my own reputation, for my own glory or career or comfort. And yet, Jesus is portraying here a world that will one day see him. The full revelation, the full apocalypse of seeing Jesus as he is, but it is not yet. The kingdom has come, and it will one day culminate at the revelation of the Son of Man. But isn't it frustratingly slow? After all, in Acts 1, the apostles are still frustrated with Jesus. Can you imagine? After Jesus' death, resurrection... His glory being revealed. And they're still frustrated with Him. Why? Because He's not taking His throne. When are you going to do it, Jesus? When are you going to make things right, finally? He's like, nah, guys, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons. Just be faithful where you are today. Which is exactly the point of our final and a clarifying parable that Jesus now tells in chapter 18, if the kingdom comes... And if the kingdom will one day culminate, what about today? What about the time between the times? It's like Revelation 19, 20, the time of the coming kingdom, and then here's Luke 17, and then here's where we're living, right here, in between. What about when we find ourselves in this time between the times where we're waiting on the coming kingdom? Lastly, the time in between. I asked Haley to just read this big chunk at the end of chapter 17. But we're going to get this connected parable here at the beginning of 18 as well, because it so matters to our interpretation of chapter 17. Let me read this. In chapter 18, Luke writes, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So, lesson we should just badger and pester God with our requests. I need a new car. I really need to do well on this test or on this interview. I really want this guy or this girl to notice me. I want a boyfriend, a girlfriend, or a spouse. And then God gets so annoyed with you that he finally relents. Okay, boom, brand new SUV for you. Okay, boom, 31 on your ACT. Boom, promotion for you. Boom, Cupid arrow in the back of the quarterback, just for you. (laughs) I had a pastor who used this parable when he talked about prayer. Was he right to do this? It looks like it. Just badger and pester God with what you want and finally he'll give in. Well, Jesus tells this parable where we've got a judge who doesn't fear God. A judge who doesn't respect man. In other words, he's a bad dude. He doesn't have a moral compass for, for determining what is right or wrong. Maybe like if you were downtown and you saw a judge coming out of the courthouse and he stops with a known bookie or a known other bad dude in town and he t- takes a bribe right out in the open. And then he gets into his sports car and he peels out and he yells at the little old lady uh, for getting in his way, for crossing the street in front of him. He's a bad dude. This is the one that God has placed to administer justice over society. And if the judge doesn't administer justice, then it seems that no one will get justice. Then we have a widow who has no one. In this day, women do not go to court. Men go to court for them. So the fact that she is there shows us that she has no one. There is this adversary that is against her. We have no more context than that. But she has no husband, she has no father, she has no son, she has no uncle, she has no nephew. This lady is the most vulnerable, the most exposed person in Jewish society. She has nothing. Her only play is to be annoying. But back to the judge. It's kind of amusing how honest he is in verse 4. He says, I'm not going to give this lady justice because I fear God. I'm not going to give her justice because it's the right thing to do. I'm not going to give her justice because I respect her as a human being. I'm going to give her justice because she's wearing me down. She's giving me a headache. So I'll just give her what she wants so she goes away. And then Jesus says in verse 6, having heard all that, where he says, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Jesus says, hear what their unrighteous judge says. Listen to that. That's weird. So is this what God is like? Unwilling to hear his people's requests? Unwilling to administer justice? We just have to wear him down until he relents? Well, no, again, like we've seen so many times throughout the gospel of Luke, this is an argument from the lesser thing to the greater thing. Remember in Luke 16, if the dishonest manager understood the world in which he lived and made decisive decisions about the coming kingdom of darkness, how much more should we children of light understand the world in which we live and make similarly, similar decisive decisions? If this is true, this lesser thing, then how much more will this greater thing be? If this wicked, unrighteous judge like this, if he is like this, if he finally gives justice, how much more will your, will your heavenly Father give justice? This is similar to what Jesus taught in Luke, or Luke 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? No father will do that. And if no earthly father will do that, how much more will your father give you good things? But here's where the end of this parable, and in fact the context of chapter 17, is crucial for our understanding of how all this fits together in what Jesus is actually teaching. Jesus has been teaching about the coming and about the culminating kingdom, the end of all things, and the administering of justice, the vindication of his people. And then here in verses 7 and 8, chapter 18, after this parable, Jesus says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Not necessarily in any unanswered prayer, any prayer of SUVs or promotions or boyfriends. But back to verse 22 of chapter 17, there will be days that the disciples long to see the Son of Man. Where is He? Where is the King? Where is His kingdom? But when He's saying these things, He's here with them now. Why will they want to see Him? Well, verse 25, again, He must suffer. He must be rejected by this generation, the cross. He must suffer and die for them. And not just Him, Remember back in Luke 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his own cross and follow me. There's a day coming of difficulty where things do not appear like he is in control. And after those days, it will be like the days of Noah and Lot. What does all this mean? where everyone was just going on their way, completely oblivious of the coming judgment, Noah and Lot must have had times when they were thinking, how long, O Lord? When will you come? When will you save us? When will you stop the persecution and the scoffing and the violence? So he says all this. There's a day coming where it's like the days of Noah and Lot. And then after thinking about all that, Jesus says, all right, boys, I know what you're thinking. Because life is about to get rough for you, let me tell you this parable, how to encourage you. 18.1. He told them a parable so that they, always, that, they, that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. This context helps us understand Jesus' conclusion a little better too. That last sentence where he says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? There's no, there's no question marks In the Greek. There's no—it's not quite clear that what he's doing here, what he's asking. This is probably a rhetorical question. Yes, of course, he will find faithful people on the earth. The Holy Spirit is the one who calls and keeps the elect. So yes, just like Noah and Lot, God will be faithful to keep a remnant of his people. But really, though? Justice? Justice speedily? I mean, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus said these words— and hundreds of thousands, if not millions upon millions, have suffered while they faithfully waited. Perhaps millions have not been martyred for their faithfulness to Jesus. And Jesus tells his disciples that this, he tells them this story, and then nearly all of the disciples who hear this story will be killed in violent ways for being disciples of Jesus. What happened to the speedy justice? Our widow gets justice here in this parable, but sometimes it seems like we don't, like many Christians don't. Well, a couple of things, and the first is timing. Peter writes in 1 Peter, With the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you. In a world of instant pots and insta-carts, we don't like this. We don't like one day being as of a thousand and a thousand being as one day. And we definitely don't like what I'm about to say, that justice may not come in this life. Remember the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus remained his entire life in lowly suffering and humiliation. But that light and momentary affliction, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians. That light and momentary affliction is only light and momentary if it has perspective, if it is understood in the scope of things. That Lazarus, after a light and momentary affliction, however horrible and difficult it was, was momentary. That he was elevated for eternity. But just as the judge isn't a perfect picture of God in this parable, the widow isn't a perfect picture of us. She had no one to speak on her behalf. She was defenseless. And yet Paul says in Romans 8 that Jesus is interceding on behalf of his people. Right now, in this moment, like right now, when Puritan has said, how many of our troubles would go away if we knew right now in this moment that Jesus, the God-man, was praying for you. And John, Jesus says that he is sending the helper, that he is sending the advocate, the lawyer, the helper, this Holy Spirit, with his people. But this widow did know that she had no hope and she had only one play. And similarly, we have no hope. The only justice that we are owed is the just judgment of our sin, of our treason and rebellion, and our only hope, our only play is that of Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ. Through him we are given not only what we need, his righteousness, forgiveness, but he also gives every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He gives us a place with God, a place of belonging, a place of inheritance. And my guess is that most of us, I know that most of us are not in a situation similar to the widow's. But if you feel like you are not seeing justice, if you're like David in Psalm 73 and you see the wicked prospering, you're like, what in the world? Take heart. Rest in the coming Son of Man. The world is not as it ought to be. The governments of this world are not as they ought to be. The church is not as it yet ought to be. Our hearts, are not as they ought to be, totally depraved. And it all needs every single part of my heart, every single part of our church, every single part of the government of New Mexico, every single part of the government of the United States, every single part of all of the kingdoms of this world, all need the transformation of Jesus. I said that this parable isn't probably what it's most often interpreted to be, just badger God until he relents. But Jesus said, Luke tells us in verse 1, he told them this parable that they ought to pray. Prayer is certainly an implication of what this parable means, of what it means to be in the time in between the times. Paul writes in Philippians 4, be anxious in nothing, but make your requests known to the Lord. What is the antidote for anxiety? To make your request known to the Lord. Recognize Him as your only play, your only hope. We, we labor knowing that our labor is not in vain, but here's the thing, we may just have to wait. We will wait on the Lord. Our soul waits Our labor is not in vain. Today really matters in what we are working toward and what we are building in this church and beyond, in our city, in our culture, in our societies. We may just have to wait. But if you don't see yourself as the widow, everything's mostly pretty good in your life. And I'm preaching to myself here. Where everything is mostly pretty good. If you don't find yourself praying, crying out for God to move, to vindicate, to bring justice, to do what is right, for him to change you and to transform you out of your own sinful desires, for him to make himself the ultimate place of your joy, for him to appear and to make himself the ultimate place of worship as the king of kings and lord of lords so that all might see and worship, this may be an indicator that you're still trusting in yourself. It may be an indicator that you are still just pretty kind of comfortable to go to bed in the si- safe, snuggly, warm house and night night, and we'll do it again tomorrow. You don't see yourself, your situation as hopeless, and the cross of Christ as your only play. You really just think that you can fix things for yourself and make your life better, easier, more enjoyable. The return of Christ would be nice but not necessary. In fact, I'd like to fully live my life and experience all the things that there is to experience before you come back, please and thank you, Lord Jesus. Perhaps that should come as a warning. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day of Noah when he entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Like Lot, and unlike Lot's wife, we should work and invest in the city in the lives in which we live, but we must travel lightly. We must, must not put too much hope in the next greatest thing. And so I'll end this with the same Spurgeon quote that I'll share probably once or twice a year, where he wrote, he preached, that the Christian is the most contented man in the world, and he is the least contented with the world. The Christian is like a traveler in an inn or a hotel, Perfectly satisfied with the inn and its accommodation, considering it though as an inn, putting quite out of all consideration the idea of making it his home. The world is good, the kingdom is better. The coming of Christ is better than all things. The kingdom has come, but it has not yet come in its completion. So we labor, we build, we do not put our feet up, and yet, we wait. We watch. We hope. We expect. And we pray for justice to be done, for the kingdom to come, for the, for the Christ, the Son of Man, to be exposed and be seen rightly. And until then, we wait. We'll slow way down next week. In fact, the next few weeks, we're going to take it. This is a big chunk today. The next few weeks, we're going to zoom way in with perhaps a more narrow application in our life, but it is the coming kingdom of Christ that we press into. We seek to enter through the narrow door and we wait for its full coming. And until that day, let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are king of heaven and earth. We acknowledge this reality. We love this reality. That you, are king of heaven and earth, ought to bring such comfort to our souls. May it be that you are king of heaven and earth, and that you pray for us, your people, individually, that you advocate on our behalf, you intercede on our behalf, you bring us into the presence of God through your life and death and resurrection. Your life died for us, your new life given to us, your ascension into heaven. You are ruling rightly Help us, give us patience, give us contentment, give us the desire to pray, to ask you for things, not the things that we want, but the things that we need, for the things that are good and right for this world, for the things that are good and right for our lives, for the things that are good and right for our neighbor around us. Lord, help us long for your coming each and every day Might today be the day that you return, Lord Jesus, and if not, we pray, tomorrow. Even so, in all these things we ask, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.